Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Interesting that central banks have become a focal point of criticism on the campaign trail. Donald Trump last week saying that Janet Yellen was running things in a political manner. The whole idea was that uh, she was trying to make the economy better for Barack Obama instead of doing the right thing. Um, Luigi Zingales is a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School. He joins us now. He's a finance uh, professor. Um, this has not been isolated to the Fed. There's a lot of political criticism of the Bank of Japan getting into fiscal policy. And, of course, in Europe, there's a long tradition of the politicians telling the central bankers what they think they should be doing. Uh, do you worry at all that central banking is going to, because it, uh, it hasn't been able to produce the results it used to be able to produce, that it's going to become politicized and that central banks will lose effectiveness because the politicians will start to rule the roost? First of all, uh, the central bank banker uh, become the only game in town. And that's the reason why uh, they've become so, uh, such a lightning rod, because uh, too uh, many expectations have been sort of put on them. And I don't think that they can deliver uh, everything they expected to deliver. So uh, this gap between uh, uh, performance and expectation is bound to be there for a while and is uh, sort of uh, designed to create uh, a, a political tension. Um, I distinguish very much uh, the three, if you want, uh, area, uh, the United States, Japan, and, and Europe, because uh, uh, in addition to the typical problem that uh, a central bankers have in, in Japan and the United States, in Europe there is the fact also that uh, there is no country. You are a governor of a country that doesn't exist. And, and so that creates an additional set of tension. Uh, in, in the United States, we don't discuss uh, monetary policy in terms of uh, Alabama versus New Jersey. In, in Europe, uh, we do. And, and that's, that's a, an additional source of tension for central bankers. In Japan, they seem to be willing to come closer together, the fiscal and monetary authorities. In the U.S. and Europe, uh, they don't at this point. Do you think that that gap closes if they can't? create inflation over the next year or so? Um, I think that uh, Paul Tucker, who was the former vice governor of the, of the Bank of England, uh, once told me, and I think he's writing a book about this, that uh, uh, if the central bankers become too independent, at some point there is a political backlash and uh, sort of uh, they lose all their independence. This has happened in, in the 30s. And uh, there is a risk of this is happening today. Uh, I we think I think that uh, the situation of Japan is the result of uh, twenty years of uh, low growth to say sort of uh, zero growth, and uh, after that, uh, politicians uh, express 
a preference, a political preference that comes not uh, from the fact that they are crazy, but the fact that uh, people demand, voters demand uh, more intervention. And so I think that uh, in Japan, the, the, the governor responds more to a political demand of uh, uh, voters in Japan. I think that uh, in the United States, there is more of a isolation. And in principle, in Europe, there is the highest level of isolation. The, the, the European Central Bank has been designed to be completely independent from every single state. And changing yeah. it will require basically the approval of everybody, which is as impossible yeah. as you can get. Uh, Luigi, I'm sorry. I've been quiet the first five minutes, 47 seconds of the show. Mike, I'm over here with Arthur Levitt picking out our Super Bowl tickets. Uh, New York Giants. <laughs> New York Giants, 2-0. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. just, I mean we'll the, talk with Arthur later in the show. And we no will. He will. I mean, be happy. somehow that will come up. For those of you worldwide, it's, it's always fun to see the start of the football season where uh, certain teams stumble and others don't. Good morning, everyone. Luigi, you and I have talked a lot this morning about some of the uh, unsettlements of this September. Are we anywhere in the vicinity of orthodox economics? Are you teaching old line economics at Booth School? Or are you teaching something all new? Uh, my great fortune is I teach actually finance, and so I don't need to go into the macroeconomics component, which is more challenging these okay, days. So, so negative rates. Come on, you're teaching negative rates. There's got. I, I, is there an orthodoxy to negative rates? Um. Actually, uh, negative rates are not that strange historically if we think about uh, real rates. Uh, real rates have been negative for a long time in the 70s. Uh, it's just a nominal component. And uh, in Chicago, we believe that uh, um, sort of you should look at real variables. And so I don't think it's okay. such a sort of dramatic change. But the fact is, if Mike McKee has a mortgage on his seven-bedroom flat over on the west side, six, six, seven bedrooms, five baths, what do you have, two or three fireplaces? Uh, four. Yeah. Four. Um, <laughs> Good for you. But, but Luigi, <laughs> if, if only. If my home, if my <laughs> this home, is an example. <laughs> if my home mortgage comes down, hmm? I get the effect on the public. What's the effect of negative rates if they don't transmit through to individual bank accounts. They're almost like an institutional artifact. I think that uh, they will start to to trickle down, actually, uh, if uh, we see in countries like Switzerland that have been playing with uh, uh, negative rates for longer, that now, at least for large deposit, uh, you have to uh, pay to deposit. And uh, for small deposits, they you don't formally have to pay, but they charge you a fee here and a fee there. So basically, we are in the negative rate as well. The only thing we don't really know, because we're not really tested this bound, is how low you can go until people started to hold cash. And, uh, you know, holding cash is not simple. There are risks uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, the ECB is trying to make it harder by uh, retiring the 500 euro notes uh, okay. and so on and so forth. But uh, we don't know how, how low you can, you can go. That's really the only technical issue that we mm. have with, with, negative, we have rate, with negative rates. But what seems to be happening in practice, it's all theory, but in practice, banks seem to be pulling back from wanting to make loans because of the cost to them. Actually, uh, it, it depends because uh, if you are really, if your alternative cost is to deposit at the central bank and pay for it, uh, making a loan even at a zero rate might, might be attractive. I think that uh, uh, unfortunately, where we have seen 
negative rates uh, on, uh, on the deposits to the central bank like in Europe, uh, the banking sector is not particularly healthy, so uh, they withdraw from making loans altogether. But, but with uh, a healthy banking sector, uh, negative rates at the central bank should push more uh, loans into the economy. Oh, Michael, this is great. Chair of the Fed, a monetary policy game. You can plug in how many quarters you have remaining in your term. You can plug we'll get, in the Fed. This is what they do at Booth School. We'll get uh, we'll get um, uh, some people playing that, I guess. You think Ron Wednesday. Paul's ever played this game? No. <laughs> um, you were mentioning football, and I was talking yes. with uh, Luigi Zingales about um, – he, he said he only follows real football. Uh, oh, he, here we he, go. he follows AC Milan and La Liga, which is not having a good year. Uh, Italy in general, not having a good year, which sort of brings us to where I wanted to go <laughs> with this. Uh, last week, the um, European leaders got together, and there was quite a break between Matteo Renzi, the prime minister of Italy, and uh, the rest of the Europeans, in, especially Angela Merkel. It, they would not let the Italians have budget flexibility to deal with their banking crisis. Are we starting to see the unraveling of Europe? I mean, the question that went through my mind is, did the Brits get it right? Certainly, there is a lot of tension. I think that uh, the strong uh, positions taken by Matteo Enzi were, in part, uh, just internal tactics. There is a big anti-European sentiment in Italy, and so he needs to cater to to this. But there is also some substance, uh, as I uh, was saying earlier, in, in Bratislava, we didn't get a sense that Europe was moving ahead. After the Brexit vote, we expected some plan to show more unity, more sort of common uh, purposes, mm-hmm. uh, more direction. We have not seen any of that. So um, I think that uh, there are some strong tensions uh, to sort of break down uh, uh, Europe. The, the difficulties is that... Uh, uh, is very hard to get out of the euro uh, without uh, killing yourself. So that is what, uh, at the moment, is keeping at least the eurozone together. Well, do you think uh, the Italian referendum is going to be as important to the future of Europe uh, and European markets as some people have suggested? I think it's as important as you make it, in a sense, uh, if you look at the substance, uh, is not that crucial because uh, it's a constitutional reform that is trying to get away from uh, a a system that uh, is based on two chambers with no differentiation and is very baroque and very uh, difficult to manage. Uh, It's not going all the way to one chamber. It's not really the linear reform that everybody would expect. So there is a lot of debate whether uh, half of a reform is better than no reform. Uh, Now, if you sort of uh, then say that uh, if Renzi loses the referendum, Renzi will go home and uh, the world will fall apart, of course, you might have some uh, self-fulfilling expectation in this sense. I don't think that that's the case. What is the difference between Italian populism and American populism? Um, actually, you have to differentiate various type of Italian uh, populism. In a sense, uh, we do have uh, uh, the Northern League that uh, is um, 
sort of now featuring a populist which is quite similar to the one of the National mm-hmm. Front in France and actually quite similar to the one of Donald Trump. In fact, uh, the leader of the uh, Northern Link came here and trying to connect with Trump and, and link with Trump. Um, it, more interesting is actually the five-star movement uh, populist because is neither from the left nor the right as some left-wing component, some right-wing component, um, and is more like... Uh, um, broad-based populism uh, like uh, we had in the United States right. uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, end of well, the 19th, beginning of the 20th. Professor, thank you so much. Luigi Zingales with uh, the Booth School. Mike, we're a news organization. Headlines out on Mr. Trump. And um, right. I want to be direct, folks. Uh, we've got to report these headlines to you. But what I really would want to say, w- the images that we see from New York that John Tucker, Michael McKee, and I and our whole staff have along with all New Yorkers have lived with for the last 48 hours. Um, His shots against the police are are borderline unforgivable. Uh, The police have been out here. They've been at risk, uh, certainly with the New Jersey, John, with the New Jersey robot uh, explosion. That was the Elizabeth Station. Then Saturday there was also uh, in a trash can down at the shore. And you saw Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo, the governor of the state of New York, walking Michael down the debris-strewn street. And... Um, for Mr. Trump to say police don't act because afraid of profile and acquisitions, Mr. Trump says police, quote, know who a lot of these people are, uh, just completely goes against the heroism and duty of service that I've seen well, in the last four years. This is hours. a man who insisted until Friday that President Obama was not born in the United yeah. States. And, uh, you know, what do you say? Yeah, and I, well, I want to say this, folks, and we didn't mention Michael Bloomberg here, but as we mentioned, Merida Plazio, of course, Mr. Bloomberg is majority owner of Bloomberg LP in this television and radio station uh, as well. Mr. Trump out with headlines, those on Fox News, and we'll have more on that through uh, the week, no doubt. I'd like to look at the Wells Fargo uproar through the eyes of yeah. a sell-side analyst who has buy, hold, or sell. Brendan Hawkins at UBS writes up on Wells Fargo, and I believe his call, unless he wants to tell me I'm wrong, is S-E-L-L. Brendan, good morning. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Oh, I think I'm good. How do you take judicial action or whatever we saw, fines with Wells Fargo, and fold it into securities analysis? Yeah, it's a, it's a very hard one. And of course, my, my sell rating, which we initiated on in, I want to say it was like March of this year, uh, had certainly I wasn't calling for this, right? Um, uh, but my, my thesis was based around not only a worry that earnings estimates were too high, uh, particularly using 2017, and those have dropped steadily from you know, about 450 uh, when we initiated to now just about $4.20. So that has actually worked out reasonably well. We were also concerned, though, that, that the valuation just didn't leave much room uh, for uh, error. Um, the idea that you would value a GCFI, a global CIFI, at the same level as you would value a, the regional bank average didn't seem appropriate. Um, and maybe it has to do with scar tissue from covering, you know, the five bulge bracket investment banks here in the States and seeing how much the regulators has just 
beaten up on those those firms, um, we were worried about um, the uh, the idea that you had a big premium with no regulatory discount. And unfortunately, now Wells is is seeing how how harsh the Klieg lights can be turned on when a GCFE stumbles. Well, you, you were early uh, on the call, and uh, you talked about valuations. Subtract uh, the recent scandal from your evaluations. If 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 the price came down, would it still be a buy? And the reason I ask that is because for a long time, everybody said this was a different bank. This is not the same as the Wall Street investment banking model. They stick to their knitting. They do credit intermediation, do a lot of mortgages, and so therefore they're insulated from a lot of the other uh, problems. Yeah. Well, just to be clear, my, my, my rating is not a buy. Uh, uh, no, no. I know. mean, would it would it go back to? Oh, would it to... become yeah. a buy? Well, it, it, it wouldn't go back because I, I initiated with a sell. But, but, but um, <laughs> avoiding the stickler in here for detail, um, I, of course there's a price, right, at which uh, every security, in my opinion, has a price at which it becomes attractive. Right now, I think that the idea that we've got um, a worry to our rating – uh, uh, because of some sort of catalyst within the next couple months, I'd say that risk is low. In, at least in our assessment, uh, the risk is low. Um, with that being said, uh, uh, you know, uh, we've seen the premium uh, come in a great deal on valuation. At this point, it's on a next 12 months consensus basis. It's at about the same valuation as J.P. Morgan. Um, and uh, that, to me, feels less inappropriate uh, than where it was before, um, for sure. But when I think about risks to the upside, um, uh, you know, I, I think they're pretty limited here in the near term. Do you know what's on the balance sheet? It's a critical question to me in that, as Mike said, Wells Fargo's always been different. That translates into the idea that we know what's on the balance sheet, do we? Well, I mean, that's the issue with all banks, I think. Um, you know, part of our concern with earnings estimates were that there is um, more risk in the auto loan book than we felt as though investors were aware of and expecting. Um, you know, Wells has stated often that 10% of their um, auto loan book is subprime, but that's based upon their internal models. If you use FICO scores, the number is substantially higher. It's something like a quarter. And if you want to include near prime, in other words, say just a non-prime, subprime and near prime, you know, it's, it's roughly 40% of that book. So, you know, mm -hmm. in our view, they're a full-spectrum lender, and, and uh, uh, most people don't treat them that way. Uh, they've also been growing their card book rapidly. Uh, the CNI book is heavily tilted to energy, and most of that is below investment grade. We've seen a great deal of attention brought to that here in the last six months. Now, so, you know, I, I, I don't know how to answer your question directly, Tom, but what I would generally say is that uh, there's probably more risk in that loan book than most right. investors ascribe. Now, very quickly, uh, would a change in management, would a change in Mr. Stump's office make a difference? Well, I mean, if you, if you mean by that, Mike, uh, would it make a difference to my rating, uh, no, I mean I don't. I don't think the management team is a, a negative. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's a very well-run bank. We said that in our initiation. Um, we don't have a, a structural concern about them. This development is certainly going to crank the heat up on this management team. Um, 
But we've seen other strong management teams survive equal amounts of heat, right? And on the back of the whale trade, Diamond right. was under pressure for a well, while, and, and he's still here. So Okay, very valuable. Thank you so much. Uh, Brennan Hawkins with us uh, this morning from UBS on Wells Fargo. Worldwide, this is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well, the good news is there's only f- that we're down to the 50-day mark in the election countdown. Only 50 days left in this um, election season. And I know a lot of people would be celebrating that news. Chuck Gabriel, um, I don't know if you'd be celebrating or not. As a voter, as an American, you probably would be. But as somebody who has to write about all this stuff, it's got to be great for your business. He is... Uh, at uh, Capital Alpha, writes about politics uh, for them, uh, longtime Washington observer. And uh, you got to say, um, you always think it can't get any worse, and then it does, Chuck. Yeah. Yes, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you you got to worry when a political proctologist has as much uh, business as, as I do right now, so guys like I do right now. But uh, there, there's some eerily, eerie similarities uh, going on here, and, uh, you know, we, we have a backdrop with all these, you know, these four violent, uh, seemingly terrorist events over the weekend. Uh, you know, the backdrop is that uh, Hillary Clinton's lead in national polls is down to less than 1%. So, uh, you know, the hottest hand in the political forecasting business has been Nate Silver at 538. And he said, there's no need for Democrats to panic unless it's like, you know, the polls say the same thing a week from now. Uh, well, you know, these, these terrorist attacks get us off to a heck of a start at the beginning of this week. Yeah, I, I saw that story. And I think kind of what he was pointing at is next a week from tomorrow morning. What are we all going to be talking about? I mean, it's going to be the day after the debate. And that it, it could be definitive. Interesting uh, piece uh, out today from the ABC News uh, pollsters um, who you know, also do work for us uh, suggesting debates in the past don't, you know, Gary Langer reporting debates in the past don't usually move the needle. But I would imagine this one could be really, really, really important. Well, yeah, there was, there was just one of those golden moments back in the 1980 campaign between Reagan and Carter. And it wasn't the first debate. I believe it was the second one. But you know, there had been really uh, a great deal of anxiety. You had the Iranian hostage situation going on. A lot of Americans felt very help- helpless uh, throughout that whole period. They wanted change, but there was this issue about uh, Reagan's viability, which he seemed to finally answer uh, in that second debate. And, you know, there, it's interesting. These, there's this sense of, uh, in the public right now, uh, that's, that's kind of reinforced by these attacks that, you know, they, they feel a helplessness about homegrown terrorism, uh, and some would say the elites and ability to deal with or even call it what it is. So, you know, there, there's kind of a risk if this continues to amp up, it works to Trump's advantage. And then if he does have a, you know, a golden right. Reagan-like moment in the debates, it, it could really 
make a for a major breakout. Help me with a question I couldn't answer this weekend for people pontificating about politics. Chuck Gabriel, which states matter right now? Um, there are about uh, 10 states that matter, but Ten. really within that. Yeah, but really probably only more like six. And where, where Trump has really uh, you know, shocked uh, the, the Democratic strategists and stakeholders is that he's pulled ahead in Iowa and Nevada and most importantly in Ohio and Florida. Um, Mitt Romney won 206 electoral votes. You need 270. So uh, Trump needs 64 and to hold all of Romney's states. And, you know, Florida gets you 29, Ohio 18, and Iowa and Nevada six apiece. So were he to actually hold on to those those four states, he'd be within less than a half a dozen votes of getting there. And he's also, you know, uh, risen a little bit in Minnesota, excuse me, in Michigan, I should say, uh, and um, in a couple of other states. So in Colorado. So there's there's really uh, for the first time in in a conceivable you know, it's now conceivable that he has a viable path to election and it's uh, begun to really freak out a lot of people. Why? Uh, what's happened to to change this? When you look at what he's done recently with an incomprehensible uh, economic plan that has been widely panned. His, his comments about uh, disarming Hillary Clinton's Secret Service detail uh, and the whole birther thing, um, right. the lies about that. How does he do it? Well, let's just let's just say uh, I don't know that he deserves much credit at all. Mrs. Clinton had a, a very bad, literally and figuratively, a stumble last weekend and uh, you know with regard to her pneumonia and the seeming dissembling of the campaign about about that and and then that comment about the deplorable so she may be at at the absolute bottom and even with that you know trump is still at least a half dozen or, or so if not uh, 21 if you also include the fact she's winning in north carolina away for his number so he may be peaking now and that's why you know folks like uh, nate silver said wait a week but you know, she has her issues. And, you know, from the very beginning, the, the question in this campaign has been just how angry is America? How many Americans really are angry? How many want to change? And, can you know, Donald well, Trump, he's certainly the candidate of change, but can he make himself seem viable right. just by being disciplined as he's been in the last few weeks, okay. arguably? And then having a good debate. Chuck, you've got a conduit into all the fancy polling people, the people that we never talk to and really are never visible. What do they say about turnout? Are we just too far away from the first Tuesday of November to have a handle on that? Or do you have a dynamic on what turnout will be? Biggest wild card. And, and that's, that's really another reason why, you know, the, the tail risk Trump story is viable because it's not, it's not clear that, for instance, millennials are going to turn off for Hillary Clinton or that they might even turn off to her and go towards third-party candidates like Gary Johnson and Jill Stein instead. And African-American voters are you know, clearly going to vote for Trump as much, if not more, than, than uh, Obama. But it's not really clear that they're going to march out to vote in the same numbers and with the same enthusiasm. So meanwhile, the Trump folks really are the deplorables, so to speak, really are very, very motivated. So turnout is absolutely the number one question, and you'd get a different opinion in every other article you read in uh, Real Clear Politics or Bloomberg. Charles Gabriel with us, with Capital Alpha, whose note, you know, all notes on politics are distinctive, and the distinction of uh, Chuck Gabriel is it is eclectic, 
and it is very sharp about things under the radar. Um, let me start with a basic question, Chuck. Which is more important, the House analysis or the Senate analysis right now? Oh, certainly the Senate. Uh, the, the House is not really in play because Republicans you know, had a really good midterm election a couple of years ago. They have the highest majority uh, that they've had literally you know, since the late 20s, I believe. And the Democrats have had an okay recruiting cycle, uh, but not a great one. So there really aren't enough seats truly in play uh, to net the Democrats the, the net 30 that yeah. they need to take over. But nevertheless, the House is still important because if you have a big shift, it will it will somewhat moderate the, to denote to obviously uh, the, the Republican leadership's behavior. The Senate, on the other hand, is extremely key because if Republicans keep both the House and Senate, it'll be a check on uh, President Clinton's agenda. They would control the budget process. Uh, it would it would be uh, truly very very important, and that's why we have felt that uh, from the market perspective, it would be a constructive outlook because it would kind of compel Mrs. Clinton to deal with Republicans on a on tax reform, on an infrastructure spending, a jobs bill, et cetera. Uh, so that's that's why the Senate really is really important. I think our, our most our best piece of this cycle was called "It's the Senate Stupid." for that obvious reason. Uh, is it still? Have we seen Senate races tighten up with the presidential race? Well, that's the big story, that that it, you've had a number of good, you know, good, arguably good Republican incumbents that have been running ahead of Donald Trump in these key states like New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and Florida, where Marco Rubio reversed and decided to run after all. So, frankly, if you were to look at polling averages right now, uh, particularly since Republicans are actually ahead in the race to the one Democratic race uh, seat that's uh, race for the one Democratic seat that's at risk. That's uh, Harry Reid's seat in Nevada. Congressman Joe Heck is actually ahead on that front. And as a result of that, uh, right now they lose a net three, uh, and they can't lose a net four. If Hillary Clinton wins, the vice president would break a tie. So, you know, you've really had a bit of a, a, a mini breakout for Republicans in distancing themselves from Trump's fortunes, and with Marco Rubio ahead in Florida, uh, and uh, uh, Rob Portman, really one of the big stars of this whole race in Ohio, uh, doing so well that the Democrats are pulling back money from former Governor Ted Strickland. You know that's why uh, you know we have toss-up odds of Republicans keeping the Senate now, even though they'll still have to thread the needle. Today, uh, the House Speaker, Paul Ryan, comes to New York to give a speech. Our Tom Keene will be there, the Economic Club of New York. Uh, kind of the question that keeps coming up from people is, how much is he going to put up with from the presidential candidate? I mean, how low can Donald Trump sink and still keep Paul Ryan on board uh, and, and, and the House, uh, you know, it, 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 from, from becoming a battleground? Well, those are two distinct questions, and, and I think they've already really tested, uh, you know, Paul Ryan's uh, intestinal fortitude and his own willingness to, to, you know, to put himself at risk or to, to align himself with things that he doesn't believe in. So I, I think we passed that some time ago, and he found a way to, to uh, work with Trump without really embracing everything he says. And, and Trump has been more disciplined of late. I mean, the whole thing over the weekend on, on the birtherism uh, you know, it's just sort of a, a diversion to be said. But but as as uh, you know, the individual House members go as they seek reelection, you have to remember that 
They are in these what we call virtual man caves that are these gerrymandered congressional districts that are very, very conservative. Their biggest worry every two years is, you know, facing a primary challenge. They're all past that. So uh, I don't think they're worried about, uh, you know, the mixture of deplorables versus progressives that they're going to run into, regardless of what Trump says. I want to go back to turnout. What does Secretary Clinton need to do to boost her turnout? Yeah, it's it's a really tough question. Um, you know, the, the, I think they had they're scratching their heads over there, and beginning to worry that, you know, maybe there's a brilliance in Trump's, you know, continuing to tweet out these things that that send everybody off on this wild goose chase on, on these distracting issues that really are kind of non-issues. They they threaten to disqualify him with with. Um, uh, you know, with with white college-educated voters, and she, there's a chance that that could offset his advantage with working-class voters. But nevertheless, you know, she's just basically run into her own problems with net disapproval rates, high dis- net disapproval rates. So, over the weekend, there was a lot of talk from her surrogates that she just needed to get back to reminding people of what she stands for on the campaign trail, rather than mm. responding to a Trump. And attacking him, but it's a right. very tough question. How do you motivate millennials? They, you know, if I could just say, they they actually vectored Bernie uh, Sanders and Liz Warren out to Ohio to to really deal with this panic well, that millennials may be breaking for the third party candidates, and it doesn't seem to be working. I guess for both candidates to motivate the marginal turnout, does a positive message work, or are we dealing with a cynical Chuck Gabriel today? which is only negativity works. Which is it? Uh, it, it's, it has seemed as though only negativity has worked to this point. And you, I think we may know the winner uh, by his signs, his or her signs, when he or she is, has the luxury to break positive down the stretch, and neither of them really does now. But ironically, Donald Trump, because he has, you know, he has been sort of indefatigably negative you know, that which does not kill, has not killed him has arguably made him stronger. If he could go positive yeah. from here on in, uh, he might have an advantage. What is it uh, that you will be looking for in the debate? What, uh, Good is, question. Is there something that, um, that will be the, the, the definitive moment to follow? I, I'll be looking for his ability to, you know, I, I love your intro into the discussion uh, about, about how he, he just seemed... Uh, almost incoherent at parts uh, or contradictory at, at times with his economic plan. You know, it'll, it'll be important that he's able to, you know, articulate that without a teleprompter, you know, what he plans to do for the economy and whether he can basically look in the camera and, and basically say that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama have let us down without saying off-putting things that scare people and put U.S. alliances at risk and spook markets, et cetera. If he can reach those, you know, that, that threshold uh, of viability mm-hmm. and be disciplined, uh, you may be surprised. Mm-hmm. Again, and, and I would just say markets have decided that he represents tail risk because they're worried about him as a protectionist. They're worried about him anti-immigration. We, don't, we think that markets might initially react, but it might be as short lived a reaction as we saw with the Brexit vote, which lasted all of two days. uh, Chuck Gabriel, thank you so much with Capital Alpha. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
I'm Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.